The Solitary Cyclist by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, dramatised by Grant Eustace, with Roy Marsden as Sherlock Holmes and John Moffat as Dr Watson. Sherlock Holmes and I knew of Miss Violet Smith was when the young and beautiful woman presented herself at Baker Street late one evening to ask for Holmes's assistance and advice. Please sit down and tell us what is troubling you. Thank you. At least it cannot be your health. So ardent a bicyclist must be full of energy. She glanced down in surprise at her own feet and I observed the slight roughening of the side of the sole caused by the friction of the edge of the pedal. Yes, I bicycle a good deal, Mr. Holmes. And that has something to do with my visit to you today. My friend took the lady's hand and examined it. You will excuse me, I'm sure. It is my business. I nearly fell into the error of supposing that you were typewriting. Of course, it is obvious it is music. You observe the spatula finger in Watson, huh? which is common to both professions. Oh, yes. yes. There is a spirituality about the face, however, which the typewriting does not generate. This lady is a musician. <laughs> yes, Mr. Holmes. I teach music. In the country, I presume, from your complexion? Yes. Near Farnham, on the borders of Surrey. <sighs> so, Miss Smith, what has happened to you near Farnham, on the borders of Surrey? As so often in our experience, Violet Smith's story began simply. When her father died, she and her mother had been left without a relation in the world, except for one uncle, Rafe Smith, who had gone to Africa 25 years before and had not been heard from since. The two of them were also left very poor. Then one day, they heard of an advertisement in the Times inquiring for their whereabouts. You can imagine how excited we were, Mr. Holmes. For we thought that someone had left us a fortune. Yeah, but uh, they had not? No, they had not. When we went to the lawyer, whose name was given in the paper, we met two gentlemen, a Mr Carruthers and a Mr Woodley, who were home on a visit from South Africa. They said that my uncle was a friend of theirs. He had died some months before in poverty in Johannesburg, and with his last breath had asked them to hunt up his relations and see that they were in no want. Hmm... Your uncle took no notice of you when he was alive, and yet is so careful to look after you when he is dead. That seemed strange to us, too. But Mr Carruthers explained that my uncle had just heard of the death of his brother, and so felt responsible for our fate. Oh, when was this interview? Last December, uh, four months ago. Uh, pray proceed. Mr Woodley seemed to me to be a most odious person. Oh, in what way? He was forever making eyes at me. Oh. A coarse puffy-faced, red-moustached young man with his hair plastered down. I thought he was perfectly hateful. And Mr. Carruthers? An older man, and more agreeable. He had polite manners and, and a pleasant smile. He inquired how we were left, and on finding that we were very poor, he suggested that I should come and teach music to his only daughter, aged ten. Miss Smith was not too proud to admit that the prospect of some income made her accept this offer, and it was an arrangement that promised well. Carruthers was a widower, but had engaged a housekeeper to look after his establishment, Chilton Grange, about six miles from Farnham. Carruthers was kind and himself musical, so they spent pleasant evenings together. And every weekend she went home to her mother in town. 
The first flaw in her happiness was the arrival of the odious Woodley. He came for a visit of a week, but it seemed three months to me. He boasted of his wealth and said that if I married him, I should have the finest diamonds in London. Finally, when I would have nothing to do with him, he seized me in his arms and swore that he would not let me go until I kissed him. Fortunately, Mr. Carruthers came in and tore him from me. At that, Mr. Woodley turned upon his own host, knocking him down and cutting his face open. That, I imagine, was the end of his visit. Yes. Mr. Carruthers apologised to me the next day and assured me that I should never be exposed to such an insult again. That's quite right. Have you seen Woodley since? I am pleased to say that I have not. Violet Smith's narrative had been surprising enough up until that point, but there was stranger to come. Every Saturday morning, she rode on her bicycle to Farnham Station to catch the train. The loneliest part of the road was where it ran for over a mile between Charlington Heath on the one side and the woods around Charlington Hall on the other. Two weeks before, she had found that, unusually, she was not alone on that stretch of road. I chanced to look back over my shoulder, and about two hundred yards behind me, I saw a man also on a bicycle. He seemed to be middle-aged, with a short, dark beard. I looked back before I reached Farnham, but the man was gone. So I thought no more about it. But you can imagine my surprise, Mr. Holmes, when on my return on the Monday, I saw the same man on the same stretch of road. And the incident occurred again, exactly as before the following Saturday and Monday. Did he always keep his distance and not attempt to molest you in any way? Always. Did you report it to your employer? Yes, I did. Mr Carruthers told me that he had ordered a horse and trap so that before long I should not have to pass over these lonely roads without some companion. Today is Saturday. Was the man there again as you bicycled to the station? Exactly as the two weeks before. Have you been able to see his face? No. He keeps too far from me. But he is certainly someone whom I do not know. The only thing I could see clearly was his dark beard. But I was determined to find out who he was and what he wanted. So what did you do? Well, I I slowed down my machine, but he slowed down his. Then I stopped altogether. So did he. So I laid a trap for him. I pedalled quickly round a sharp turning, then stopped and waited. But he never appeared. Extraordinary. This case certainly presents some features of its own. What did you do then? I went back and looked round the corner. I could see a mile of road, but he was not on it. Could he have gone down a side road? There are none. How much time elapsed between your turning the corner and your discovery that the road was clear? Oh, two or three minutes. Then he could not have retreated down the road. Ah, he took a footpath on one side or the other. It could not have been on the side of the heath. Or I should have seen him. So by the process of exclusion, we arrive at the fact that he made his way towards Charlington Hall. That is correct. Anything else? Nothing, Mr. Holmes. (laughs) Save that I was so perplexed that I felt I should not be happy until I had seen you and had your advice. You have had admirers, of course. Yes. Uh, But none currently? Only that dreadful man, Woodley, if you can call him an admirer. No one else? Well... It has seemed to me sometimes that Mr. Carruthers takes a great deal of interest in me. We are thrown rather together. He has never said anything. He is a perfect gentleman. 
But a girl always knows. Uh, what uh, does he do for a living? He is a rich man. Oh, well, fairly well-to-do. He goes to the city two or three times a week. He is deeply interested in South African gold shares. You will let me know any fresh development, Miss Smith. Yeah, I'm very busy, but I will find time to make some inquiries into your case. In the meantime, take no steps without letting me know. Holmes sat silently for some time after she had left, considering all he had heard. It is part of the settled order of nature that such a girl should have followers, Watson, uh, but her choice not on bicycles on lonely country roads. To some secretive lover, perhaps? Beyond all doubt. But there are curious and suggestive details about the case. Uh, that he should appear only at that point. Exactly. Our first effort must be to find who are the tenants of Charlington Hall. Then again, how about the connection between Carruthers and Woodley, uh, since they appear to be men of such different types? How came they both to be so keen upon looking up Rafe Smith's relations? And what sort of rich man's household is it that does not keep a horse that is six miles from the town? Yes, 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 odd, Watson. It's, it's all odd. So you will go down? Oh, no, my dear fellow, you will go down. What? This may prove, after all, to be some trifling intrigue, and I cannot break off my other research for the sake of it. <laughs> On Monday, you will arrive early at Farnham, conceal yourself near Charlington Heath, observe the facts for yourself, and act as your own judgment advises. When I reached the Heath early on Monday morning, as Holmes had directed, it was impossible to mistake the scene of the young lady's adventure. The road ran between the open heath on one side and an old yew hedge on the other, surrounding a park. There was a main gateway of lichen-covered stone, but the house itself was invisible from the road. I had not been long in hiding behind a clump of gorse before I saw a cyclist riding down the road from the opposite direction to that in which I had come. He had a black beard. On reaching the end of the Charlington grounds, he sprang from his machine and led it through a gap in the hedge, disappearing from my view. After a quarter of an hour, the young lady appeared on her way from the station. As soon as she passed the Charlington hedge, the man emerged from his hiding place and followed her on his bicycle. She looked back at him and slowed her pace. He slowed also. She stopped. He at once stopped too. Then she suddenly whisked her wheels round and dashed straight at him. He darted off, however, in desperate flight, so she turned back and cycled on. The man followed her out of my sight and then returned. He turned in at the hall gates and down the drive. What I regarded as a good morning's work did not seem so to Holmes when I presented my report to him that evening. My dear Watson, your hiding place was very faulty. Mm-hmm. You should have been behind the hedge. Mm-hmm. Then you would have had a close view of this interesting person. As it is, you were some hundreds of yards away and can tell me even less than Miss Smith. <sighs> she thinks she does not know the man. I'm convinced she does. Why otherwise should he be so anxious that she should not get so near him as to see his features? Uh, well, what next? Um, the local house agent could tell me nothing about Charlington Hall, uh, but referred me to a firm in Pall Mall. Oh. Yes, I halted there on my way home and found that the tenant is a respectable elderly gentleman called Williamson. Our man returns to the hall, and to find out who he is, you come to a London house agent. Yeah, well, what should I have done then? Gone to the nearest public house. 
Oh. That is the centre of country gossip. <laughs> they would have told you every name from the master to the scullery maid. Williamson. He conveys nothing to my mind, except that if he is an elderly man, he is not this active cyclist who sprints away from that athletic lady's pursuit. Uh, we have, I fear, gained little from your expedition. Mm. Well, well, my dear Watson, don't look so depressed. We can do little more until next Saturday. But next morning we had a note from Miss Smith. As well as recounting the very incidents which I had seen, there was an important postscript. My place here has become difficult, owing to the fact that my employer has proposed marriage to me. He took my refusal very seriously, but very gently. You can understand, however, that the situation is a little strained. Our young friend seems to be getting into deep waters. Yes. I shall be none the worse for a quiet, peaceful day in the country. I'm inclined to run down this afternoon and test one or two theories I've formed. Holmes's quiet day in the country had a singular termination, for he arrived at Baker Street late in the evening with a cut lip and a discoloured lump on his forehead. My dear Holmes, whatever oh, that... You are aware, Watson, that I have some proficiency in the sport of boxing. Today, I should have come to a very ignominious grief without it. But how on earth did that come about? I found that country pub which I had already recommended to your notice, and with it a garrulous landlord who was happy to give me all I wanted. There is some rumour that the white, not black, bearded Williamson is or has been a clergyman. Ah, well, a clerical agency ought to be able to help there. I have already made some inquiries. Uh. There was a man of that name in orders whose career has been a singularly dark one. And could the landlord tell you anything else? He was informing me about the weekend visitors, especially one Mr. Woodley. When who should walk in but the gentleman himself, mm. who had been drinking his beer in the tap room and had heard the whole conversation. Well, from what we've been told already, I imagine he didn't take kindly to that. No, no, no. He had a fine flow of language, and his adjectives were very vigorous. Mm. He ended a string of abuse by a vicious backhander, which I failed to entirely avoid. Yes, mm. Well, the next few minutes were delicious. Mm. I emerged as you see me. And Woodley? Ah, Woodley. Well, he went home in a cart. But I must confess that my day on the Surrey border, however enjoyable, has not been much more profitable than your own. Mm. The Thursday brought us another letter from our client. You will not be surprised, Mr. Holmes, to hear that I am leaving Mr. Carruthers' employment. The cause of my leaving is not merely the strange situation with Mr. Carruthers, but the reappearance of that odious man, Mr. Woodley. He was always hideous, but he looks more awful than ever now, for he appears to have had an accident and is much disfigured. I saw him out of the window, talking to Mr. Carruthers, who seemed much excited afterwards. Woodley must be staying in the neighbourhood, for he did not sleep here, and yet I caught another glimpse of him this morning. I would sooner have a savage, wild animal loose about the place... So I have resolved to come up to town on Saturday and not to return. Mr. Carruthers has got a trap, and so the dangers of the lonely road, if there were ever dangers, are now over. Ah, oh, so I trust, Watson. So I trust. But uh, you are doubtful? Very. Uh, there is some deep intrigue going on round that young woman. Then it is our duty to see that no one molests her upon that last journey. Indeed. We must spare time to go down together on Saturday morning. Yes. 
Make sure this curious investigation has no untoward ending. I confess that I had not up to now taken a very serious view of the case, which had seemed to me rather grotesque and bizarre than dangerous. That a man should lie in wait for and follow a very handsome woman is no unheard of thing. If he had so little audacity that he fled from her approach, he was not a very formidable assailant. The ruffian Woodley was a very different person, but he only molested our client once and had recently visited the house of Carruthers without intruding upon her presence. Yet that Holmes thought that tragedy might prove to lurk behind these curious events was evident from the severity of his manner, and from the fact that he slipped a revolver into his pocket before we left 221B Baker Street. That's a glorious morning, Holmes. Yes, let us hope it remains that way, Watson. Charlington Hall is well hidden by its woods. This rise must be the only place on the road from Farnham that you can see it. Mm. It's rather a grim-looking place. And poorly kept. Mm -hmm. All too suitable for its occupants. I say, look. Well, down the road, uh, as far as you can see. Oh. This looks like a dog cart. I had allowed a margin of half an hour. If that is Miss Smith, she must be making for the earlier train. I fear she will be past Charlington before we can possibly meet her. Come along, Watson. From the instant that we passed over the rise, we could no longer see the vehicle. It came into view again only after we had run hard for several minutes. When it did appear around the curve of the road, it was empty. Too late, Watson. Fool that I was not to allow for the earlier train. It's abduction, murder, heaven knows what. Let's stop the horse. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> right, right now. Jump in. Right. Now let's see if we can repair the consequences of my own blunder. Once round the curve, we should be able to see if Miss Smith is anywhere on the road. No, she's not been thrown, Watson. She's been taken. Ah, but look. At least there's the man with the bicycle. But no, Miss Smith. Pull up. Or I'll put a bullet in your horse. A little caution, Watson, when we get down. Excited men with revolvers are unpredictable. <laughs> uh, you're the man we wanted to see. Where is Miss Smith? That's what I should be asking you. You are in her dog cart. Where have you taken her? We met the dog cart on the road. There was no one in it. We drove back to help the young lady. Good Lord. Then they got her. Who? That hellhound Woodley and that blackguard parson. Now, come on, man. If you are really her friend, come with me and we'll save her. If I have to leave my carcass in Charlington Wood... This is where they came through the hedge. Now, who's this? It was a young fellow of about 17, dressed like an ostler, with a terrible cut on his head, and lying motionless. Oh, that's Peter the groom. He was driving her. The beast had pulled him down and clubbed him. Is he alive, Watson? Yes, yes. The, the wound looks bad, but the bone seems to be undamaged. Let him lie. We can't do him any good, but we may save her. Well, they didn't go to the house. Here are their marks beside the laurels. They're in the bowling alley. This way, yes. the cowards. Follow me, gentlemen. We broke suddenly into a glade surrounded by trees. On the far side of it was a group of three people. One was our client, drooping and faint, with a handkerchief around her mouth. 
Opposite her stood a red-moustached young man being congratulated by an elderly grey-bearded man wearing a surplice over his suit. As we appeared, he pocketed his prayer book. Too late. They're married. Come on. You can take your beard off, Bob. I know you well enough. You and your pals are just in time for me to introduce you to Mrs. Woodley. Yes. Yes, I am Bob Carruthers. And I'll see this woman write it if I have to swing for it. <laughs> I told you what I'd do, and by the Lord, I'll be as good as my word. You're too late. She's my wife. No. She's your widow. <laughs> Blood spurted from the front of Woodley's waistcoat. And as he fell, Williamson tried to pull out a revolver of his own, only to find himself looking down the barrel of Holmes's weapon. Enough. Drop that pistol. Watson, pick it up and hold it to his head. Thank you. You, Carruthers, give me that revolver. Well, have no more violence. Come, hand it over. Who are you, then? My name is Sherlock Holmes. Good Lord. You've heard of me, I see. I will represent the official police until they arrive. When the groom is sufficiently recovered, he can take a message to the superintendent in Farnham. Until then, I must detain you all under my personal custody. Now, let us move into the house. Once we were inside, I examined the injured Woodley and reported back to Holmes. Well, Watson? He will live. What? I'll go upstairs and finish him, then. You'll stay where you are. That girl is not going to be tied to Roaring Jack Woodley for life. You need not concern yourself about that. There are two very good reasons why she should under no circumstances be his wife. In the first place, we are very safe in questioning Mr. Williamson's right to solemnise a marriage. I have been ordained. And also unfrocked. Once a clergyman, always a clergyman. I think not. How about the licence? We had a licence for the marriage. I have it here in my pocket. Then you got it by a trick. But in any case, a forced marriage is no marriage. But it is a very serious felony, as you will have the next ten years or so to reflect. As to you, Carruthers, you would have done better to keep your pistol in your pocket. I begin to think so, Mr. Holmes. But it drove me mad to think that despite all I had done, that she was in the power of such a brute and bully. What had you done? I never let her go once past this house where I knew these rascals were lurking without following her on my bicycle just to see that she came to no harm. Wearing a beard so that she shouldn't recognise you. Oh, she wouldn't have stayed in my employment long if she thought I was following her about the roads. Well, why didn't you tell her of the danger? Because then again, she would have left me. And I loved her too much to think of never seeing her in my house again. You call that love? I call it selfishness. What was it that brought matters to a head? This telegram. Well, the old man is dead. Rafe Smith, I imagine. That's right. That's where it all started. By heaven, if you squeal on us, I'll... I'll serve you as you serve, Jack Woodley. Your reverence need not be excited. The case is clear enough, and there are only a few details to explain. You three knew Rafe Smith in South Africa. Lie number one. I never saw either of them until two months ago. And I have never been to Africa in my life. Well, well, his reverence is our own homegrown article. Yes. Jack and I knew Rafe Smith. And we knew he wouldn't live long. And that he wouldn't make a will. He couldn't read or write. And Miss Smith was his next of kin and would inherit what he had. Which was a small fortune. So the two of you came over to seek her out with the idea that one of you was to marry her. Why was Woodley chosen? We played cards for her on the boat. He won. Huh. Mm. 
You got the young lady into your service, and there Woodley was to do the courting. However, she recognized the brute that he was and would have nothing to do with him. And you complicated matters by falling in love with her. It strikes me, Williamson, there isn't much that we can tell this gentleman. Woodley and I quarreled, and he made his own plans, which included this cast padre here. <laughs> then he turned up two days ago with the telegram and asked if I would stand by the bargain we had made. I said I would not. So he took matters into his own hands in his own characteristic way. Well, Mr. Carruthers, I think you have done what you could to make amends for your share in an evil plot. There is my card, sir. And if my evidence can be of help to you in your trial, it shall be at your disposal. Thank you. Now, Watson, when do you expect Miss Smith to revive from the sedative you gave her? Oh, within a quarter of an hour. Good. And then you had better repair to her side to give her the good news as soon as she awakes. But that she's not married after all, you mean? Yes, that and the fact that the demise of the uncle she never met has made her one of the richest young ladies in the land, as well as one of the handsomest. In The Solitary Cyclist by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Roy Marsden played Sherlock Holmes, John Moffat, Dr. Watson, Felicity Hayes McCoy, Violet Smith, Douglas Fielding, Carruthers, Sean Barrett, Woodley, and Hayden Wood, Williamson. The Solitary Cyclist was dramatized by Grant Eustace and directed by Michael Bartlett for Daedalus Productions.